is Hurt with Fetish, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice. A conversation based on the book Hurt with Fetish, hosted by Pastor Greg Smith and author Jason Karsh. This is a podcast for people who want to see ways in which Christian theology ought to shape our understanding of the current narrative of criminal justice. Jason Karch. And Jason, welcome this morning. Good to see you. Good to be here again, Pastor. We have been discussing issues within the criminal justice system, basically, or up until this point, just the foundations. So uh, the theological foundations of how a believer or how Christians should, or what kind of mentality or thoughts they should take as they think about these issues of justice, crime, punishment, incarceration, all of those issues. And last time we had more of a philosophical uh, discussion on being. And today we're going to talk about image. And this chapter on a reflection on image uh, in your book, you begin with a story or really with a thought about what is a peer. Because According to the Constitution, you have a right to a trial by jury of your peers. But you have some thoughts on that. What exactly or how do you define the word peer or who is a peer, which is going to begin our our discussion on, on image here? When you think about our discussion previously on being, there's a particular way I understand ontology how it works itself out in terms of relation as opposed to an understanding of ontology in terms of quality or substance. At the end of the day, you know, what we've tried to do here is show that there is a conflict of narratives or stories. There's a particular way in which the story of criminal justice is told that is in conflict with the Christian narrative, with the way that the story of Christianity is told. And the way the story is told influences or impacts the way we approach these issues, the way we think about these issues. Absolutely. And when you think about how someone in American society, if they commit a crime, they have a right to a trial by a jury of their peers. I think everybody understands that. That's part of, you know, we've been told that, we've heard that over and over again. Sure. Yeah, and you know, a peer implies some level of equality. Last week we talked about a quote from Representative Joe Moody when he was a young prosecutor in prosecutor school, how prosecutors are taught to create a distance between a jury and the defendant. You cannot allow, as a prosecutor, for the jury to see themselves in that seat. They have to create a distance between the jury and the defendant so that the jury sees the defendant as something other than themselves. So they can, hopefully, from the prosecutor's perspective, come to a decision of conviction. So they can convict this guy, send him to prison, or send him to death. not Not necessarily conviction, but to be able to exact a punishment to the fullest extent of the law. Now, when you think about peer... You know, I used this story in the beginning of the chapter of my own jury trial where I was 26 years old. There was nobody on the jury that was under 40. One of them was a 70-something-year-old retired mayor 
there is no way in that man's mind he sees me as a peer. As a peer. You know, and if somehow somebody would have told them, all right, you guys are in a position of equality to this guy. Y'all are on equal footing. And so you need to see him like that before you make a decision to assess punishment. They would have been offended by that. Simply because of how this is set up, it automatically creates this ontological distance between jury members and those accused. And it goes back to how we've set up this understanding of the current criminal justice narrative as creating distance between the good people and the bad people. The responsibility falls on the good people to be in a position to exact punishment against the bad people. So a peer would not just be another human being. It would be someone that I would have to be able to connect with on some level of something, whether it be race, would it be uh, economic connection, would it be... Well, if they seen each other as humans who were created in the image of God with equal dignity and value that stems from an inherent nature of our being created in the image and likeness of God. I think, yeah, they can be considered as peers on that level. But the point is, is we don't see each other like that. And the system is set up so that it prohibits people from seeing each other with a natural equality between one another. And as a, and as a prosecutor, that's really not what you want anyway. You do want that disconnect so that you can not just get a conviction, but as you say, send the guy to prison for life. And if you look at him as somebody like you or me, then you might not be willing to do that as a jury member, right? Exactly. Okay. And that's almost a basic, on its basic level, a trial by jury of your peers is is foundational. So almost from the get-go, we attempt to, anyway, to destroy that first foundational aspect of the criminal justice system. Well, peer loses its legitimacy when that distance is created foundationally. And so what happens is it loses its legitimacy foundationally. Now it begins to lose its legitimacy on a number of different levels, whether it's racial, socioeconomic, whatever the case may be. Once it's lost its legitimacy on that foundational level, it begins to lose its legitimacy on a number of levels. And so that is what I think creates the foundational problem that translates into a number of different problems. You know, it goes back to our uh, discussion last week where I think an overarching issue here is a class problem or whatever, but it stems from this foundational problem that we do not see each other as equal by virtue of being created in the image and likeness of God. And so your point here then is is what we have to do, maybe just foundationally, is step back. We begin, we, we need to to be, to be looking at people, whether you've committed a crime, not committed a crime, whether you are white, black, whatever you are, before any of those qualifications or classifications of being come into play, there is something even before that, which is what you've written about in this particular chapter, which is what? Well, it goes back again to how we understand being. So if we understand being in terms of relation as opposed to a quality or a substance, then we're naturally related as human beings. And so uh, once we get to this point in our discussion, as Christians, we cannot lose sight of the fact that we are related as human beings 
because we are first related to God, our Creator, and in that relation to God as our Creator, we have an equal standing as human beings. And how we relate to one another works itself out from that prior ontological relation that we share just by virtue of being created in the image and likeness of God. And as Christians, if we get away from that, we lose sight of a whole lot of other stuff that will lend itself to a number of different abuses. So as a believer, I mean, let's just, we need to back up maybe even before that, because first of all, you have to, you have to begin with God or your understanding of God. I mean, what we're talking about here is theology, which is God talk or thinking about God and your understanding of who God is or how he operates is even foundational for that. Because if you say I'm created in the image of God, what do you believe about God? What is that theological foundation of who God is then? Well, it goes back to our discussion last week. In his being, he's triune. He exists in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there is a eternal relationship between the three persons of the triune God. We have one God that exists in three persons. Now I know theologians typically will fall into one or two camps in their articulations of the triune nature of God, be it the economic understanding of the triune nature of God or the ontological understanding of the triune nature of God. And in our discussion, for the purposes of our discussion, it falls much more into the latter with the ontological understanding of the triune nature of God. But if God in his being is relation, then all of creation will reflect his character. It will reflect his nature. It will reflect his being. And so if we are created in the image and likeness of God, there has to be some vestige of our creation that reflects that relational nature or that relational character of God himself. Okay, so all creation reflects the nature of God in some way, but human beings created in the image of God, there's something unique then about humanity that is different from the rest of creation because the scripture does not say that God created everything in his image, but he created man and woman in his image. Okay, so relational, is that what that means? So to be created in the image of God, in your understanding, means that we are created to relate to one another? Is that the meaning or the definition of the image of God? I think fundamentally that would be how the image of God in man is defined. Now, of course, there's different ways in which the image of God has been articulated and in the chapter, I list three primary ways and kind of flesh those three ways out that the image of God in man has been understood. So you have the substantive view of the image of God in man. You have the functional view of the image of God in man. And then you have the relational view. And I think one of the things that has kind of created a problem throughout church history is we tend to focus on one of those to the exclusion of the others. And when we do that, we lose sight of the fullness of what the image of God in man actually represents or how the image of God in man is constituted in who we are. Okay, so let's just consider each one of those individually and then and then let's see what it looks like if you put them together. So the substantive view, I'm created in the image of God and that has some implication to the substance of who and what I am. What does that mean? 
So there's three aspects to the substantive view of the image of God in man. First, there's a, a physical aspect to it. There's a rational aspect to it. And then there's a spiritual aspect to it. Okay. But however you flesh that out in terms of those three things, there is some substance or some quality unique to human beings that represents the image of God in man. When God creates Adam from the dust of the earth, there is some physical a representation of God in a human being. So like God has uh, a face, two eyes, a nose, a mouth, ears, that type of thing? Is that what we're talking about here? Well, those are anthropomorphisms is the $5 word uh -huh. uh, for that. You know, you take human qualities and translate them back into descriptions of how God acts. Which, or, which with a finite mind, we're trying to understand the infinite. Right? Yes, even Excuse though we speak of God anthropomorphically like that, why do we speak of God like that? Because that is how God has revealed himself to us. Okay. And so we think about how God has revealed himself, and we think of it in terms of these types of characteristics. And I think that there's something to be said theologically about that in terms of understanding the image of God in man substantively. And then, of course, you have a rational understanding of the substantive view because we think in an abstract way differently than other creatures in creation. Now, of course, you have people who have studied parrots or people who have studied monkeys and would say that they have a an ability to think in an abstract way, but I don't think that that has been hammered down and proved. Yeah, so in some instances they may be able to react or to mimic uh, human behavior, but foundationally not quite so sure that hasn't been demonstrated. No, because if you think about just a reflective rationality that works itself out in terms of aesthetics, you know, it was G.K. Chesterton that said that you don't see bees or ants constructing statues of great queens. Hmm. And monkeys don't build monuments to previous primates that represented them well or whatever the case sure. may be. So in terms of a reflective rationality that works itself out in an aesthetic way, we don't see that anywhere else in all of creation except in humanity. So that would be one of the ways in which the substantive view of the understanding of the image of God in man is worked out. And then obviously you have the spiritual aspect where God breathed life into Adam and he became a living soul. And so there is a soulish or a spiritual aspect to humanity that is attributed only to human beings as apart from the rest of creation. And you know, you and I kind of jokingly talked about, you know, in spite of what Disney said, all dogs right. don't go to heaven. You know, so there's a, a specific spiritual aspect to the human being that sets the human apart from the rest of creation. So that's the substantive view. Okay. And then you have the functional view, which works itself out in, directly in relation to the dominion mandate, how when God created Adam, he told him to subdue creation. Be fruitful you know? and multiply yeah. and... And he gave him dominion over all of creation. Yes. No other part of creation was given dominion. Only Adam was. Adam as a, you know, what theologians would call a federal head or the representative of all humanity, that dominion translates down to all of Adam's progeny. We all operate under that same dominion mandate to 
rule over creation. And so that's a second way that the image of God in man has been understood throughout history. All right. And so the third view then would be the relational. Whether we bear the image of God because we look like God in some way or we think like God or we have a dominion or a, a ruling aspect to, to, our, to our being. Relational is we relate to one another and we relate to others. We relate to one another and we relate to others. And this is, this view has somewhat been, I think, neglected throughout church history. One of these views has been focused on to the exclusion of others. Now, the primary view would be the substantive view. And theologians will take the substantive view and they will focus on one of the three aspects of the substantive view, whether it's the physical, the spiritual, or the rational understanding of that. Most people that focus on the functional view uh, would be somewhat associated with the Socinian movement in the 16th century, what was condemned as in the church as a heresy. They were anti-Trinitarian. So by virtue of being anti-Trinitarian, they don't understand a relational aspect to the nature or the being of God. So these are focused on to the exclusion of the others. Well, the relational view has, over the last you know, 85, 90 years, has really emerged in a strong way. People will try to attribute it to the neo-Orthodox movement spearheaded by Karl Barth. Now, some would say that Barth even developed it from one of his students, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But there are vestiges of this as early as Augustine, how Augustine understands love the nature of love. Love itself is relational. And the Bible says that God is love. So if God is love, if, if love is relational, then God in himself is relational. And if the command is given to human beings to love one another, to love God and then love one another, then there is a relational aspect to how we live and exist as human beings. Because you have to have, in order to love, you have to have an object or you have to have a being or someone else to love. Love does not exist apart from or separate from relationship. Exactly. And I think this is one of the strongest arguments that Augustine uses for the triune nature of God that comes from his understanding of the nature of love. So this notion, or, or, or maybe historically, I guess, would be the, the understanding of God has been more substantival and so the image of God within me more substantival in fact I'm thinking you know my uh, my, my typical way of thinking about this issue of, of what does it mean to be creating the image of God I would say the image of God within me whatever else it means it means that I have the ability to relate back to God that I have a spirit I have that ability or I have that capacity there is something about me whether I'm created with spirit or whatever that I can that I can relate to God, but that is but that's substantival connected with relational. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. The problem we've ran into throughout church history is we look at, for instance, the substantive view to the exclusion of a relational view. So now it becomes the image of God in me works itself out in a physical way. And so if I am healthy, if my physicality exceeds somebody else's, whether that's in terms of looks, strength, speed, agility, artistic abilities, whatever that may be, then I am a representative of the image of God better 
than the next person. And so if you look at it in terms of rationality as well, some people are able to reason better than other people. So if somebody is thinking better than I'm thinking, if they're smarter than me, if they make better grades in school, then they're better representatives of the image of God and man than I am. And so that lends itself to abuses. It's the same way with the functional view. If I am ruling better than somebody else, then I'm a better representative of the image of God and man. And one of the particular ways that the abuses of that view has worked itself out you know, is with the donation of Constantine that gives us some divine right of kings where church leaders are able to confer a divine right of rule on certain men, not all men, but certain men mm -hmm. who are able to rule over other men as a divine right. Naturally, that's worked itself out through history in terms of abuses and does not see itself as relating to other human beings in terms of equality. So if you apply this or you, you look at the criminal justice system, just as we stated earlier, you go back to the jury pool, for example, and uh, I'm sitting on a jury and I am charged with the responsibility of determining guilt or innocence of this other human being that's sitting over here, regardless of what race or ethnicity or gender or whatever, whether we relate on any of those levels, I am charged with determining guilt or innocence and then punishment. And so if my view, if I'm even thinking in these terms, and I would guess that most people probably don't, but if I'm thinking of the image of God, I know that this guy is created in the image of God. I'm created in the image of God. But my image is a little bit better. If we're, if I'm taking a substantival or a functional view, my image is a little bit better than him because he's sitting in that chair over there and I'm sitting over here. I have not, quote, committed a crime or been charged with a crime. And maybe I'm a little bit smarter than he is or whatever, you know, however those things might work out in my mind. It basically eradicates this issue of we're peers. So there's no even possibility of a trial by jury of your peers if this is the way we approach it. Is, is that kind of your argument? That's the point. That's the That's exact the point. point. Even if you have somebody on a jury who is a, a devout believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they have been inundated with this particular narrative, or you know they've been taught a Christian narrative with the focus on a particular understanding of the image of God in man in terms of substance, capacity, or quality, then naturally, like you said, they're in a position where they cannot see this person as their equal. They are in a position to where, at the very least, they're one step down from where they're at, and that creates problems. So then, if I do take a relational view of the image of God. And I am called to do jury duty. And so I'm sitting on a jury, and here is a guy such as yourself. He's charged with armed robbery. And uh, so I'm, look, I'm looking at you, and, and maybe we even relate on some substantive level. So we're both the same race, both the same gender, close age, but I see my understanding of the image of God within you and the image of God within me is a relational type view. How does that change, though, how that might work out in terms of the administration or the execution or whatever of justice? Primarily, if that is the foundation from which you see the other person, 
then you're looking at this person in terms of trying to determine you have a range of punishment given within the parameters of the law that you're given that you can choose. Okay, we're going to sentence this person. Okay, so wait a minute. Back up just one step, though. If I determine that you are guilty of this oh, crime yeah, yeah. or if you admit to guilt, then I'm able to say, okay, we're equal before God, but you did create this crime, and so you deserve some type of punishment because of that? Yes. All right, so let's presuppose that guilt has been determined and now you're in a position to assess a penalty for the crime because the person is guilty of committing the crime. And so now in your mind, the law gives you a framework from within which to work. And the example you used, the punishment range was 15 years to 99 years to life in prison. So what is informing your decision now to assess this punishment? You say that Okay, this person who's committed this crime is created in the image and likeness of God in the same way that I am. And so we are naturally, based on our being created in the image and likeness of God, we're naturally related to one another. And so what do I want to see come out of it? What is my goal? To isolate this person from society for the rest of their natural life or isolate them from society for however many years for the purpose of keeping them out of society's purview so that they can't do anything else to anybody else at any point? Is that the goal? Or if I really see them as having inherent dignity and value, if that's the foundation from which I see them, as a Christian, there has to be something about them that is valuable enough to redeem. There has to be a sense in which they are redeemable. And so my assessment of punishment has to keep in mind that there is redemption available. And do you know that within the law, there is no such thing. There's such thing as rehabilitation defined by the law. There's certain aspects that have to be met for something to be for someone to be rehabilitated in the eyes of the law. But there's no definition for redemption. There's no concept of redemption in our common practice of jurisprudence. And is that's it, a problem. Well, and is it because that's a theological um, construct or it is a theological understanding of what criminal justice system should or shouldn't do and, and can you know can secular government or society even begin to think that way. When you think about the practices of Western jurisprudence, the way that we have defined certain practices throughout Western history in terms of the law, those have been heavily informed by theology. Now, I think in recent times there's been a distancing from theological concepts, and I think in many ways the church has come unhinged from solid theological understandings of its own theological concepts. But within the law, at least, there's been a great distancing of understandings of particular terms in the law that were early on rooted in theological understandings. And so now they've lost their theological meaning. And by losing their theological meaning that they were initially born out of, they've lost meaning altogether. Well, it seems to me like there's a couple of different aspects of this, and I've got a number of questions running around in my mind, but first of all, just to think in theological terms, why is something a crime and why is something else not a crime? So, for example, if I rob from you or whatever, I steal from you, why is that a crime? Is that Does that ultimately go back to because God says thou shalt not steal? Crime is defined by 
the rightness and wrongness that ultimately comes from God's directive of what is right and wrong or what is crime or not crime, I guess. Absolutely. I have a, a chapter, you know, a reflection on law that really unpacks that idea of how our understanding of law was initially born out of a theological understanding of what law was. But back to this understanding of a person in a jury looking at a defendant who's been adjudicated guilty for a crime, the assessment of punishment, even if I see them as equal, really as a peer, with equal dignity, equal value, the law itself, the way that it's set up, prevents me from understanding punishment in terms of having any redemptive value. It may somewhere have rehabilitative value, but I don't even think that's the case today. And I tell a story in a, in a different chapter of a guy who had to go appear at a jury duty. And so there were 65 potential jurors. And so the prosecutor asked a specific question, does anybody in here see prison primarily as rehabilitative? Or do you see prison primarily as a form of punishment? Punitive. So five people. Now remember, a prosecutor has 10 strikes for cause in a voir dire process, in a jury selection process. So five people out of 65 potential jurors raised their hands and said, we see prison as primarily being rehabilitative. And immediately the prosecutor used five of his 10 strikes to exclude these people from the potential jury pool because even rehabilitation is not foremost in the minds of a prosecutor, at least, when punishment is assessed. And so for a prosecutor, if it's not primarily in his mind, he doesn't want anybody in the jury who sees rehabilitation as a primary means to sentencing people to prison. Well, and so what that raises the issue for me, so you know, back to the illustration, if I'm sitting on the jury and I have a, re a relational view of this man who is sitting over in the defendant's chair, and I am tasked with determining guilt or innocence, and then if I determine guilt, I've got to determine some type of punishment for whatever crime has been committed. And I look at this person as a peer, I look at this other human being as someone that I relate to, and it could be me, but by the grace of God, perhaps, maybe I'm thinking in those terms. But still, what can I do to change how this plays out or how this works out in the life of this other human being over here because okay they've been judged guilty and the prosecutor says or the judge says or the law says whatever here is the punishment there's no suggestion there's no possibility of rehabilitation or that, that doesn't even come in or redemption is not even so I'm sitting here in the jury and I've got to make some type of decision how does my understanding of the image of God even change how, what the outcome may or may not be? Well, in England, they run into not this particular problem, punishment, where in English jurisprudence, particularly criminal trials, juries in England had the same right as a jury in America does. They can acquit. And so what juries in England started doing, because nobody was listening to the voices for reform in England, juries refused to convict. Prosecutors are crying foul, judges are crying foul, but that is the power invested in the jury. So you don't have to convict. 
you're not put behind the proverbial eight ball, as it were, to say, okay, I have to convict this person and then I don't have a choice but to sentence him to a prison that doesn't have a view of rehabilitation or redemption in its purview. Now I have to do this or that. So as a jury member, if I believe that the entire system is rigged against a possibility of redemption, then I refuse to convict. I mean, is that just? Is that right? Here's a person committed murder, okay? And uh, I'm on the jury, and the fact that he's committed murder, I still understand that he's created in the image of God as I'm created in the image of God. He has a soul spirit to relate to God, to relate to me. Uh, there's, there's no fundamental difference between us. Maybe I've got more money than him. Maybe I'm a different race than him. Maybe we're a different gender. But foundationally, we are both created in the image of God. And I know that, that he committed this crime. He is guilty of this crime. But if I convict him, he's going to go to a prison where there's no possibility of rehabilitation or redemption. That's not even on the table. All that is there, they're going to put him in a, in a cell. And so I make the determination that I'll just go ahead and acquit. So the issue goes back to me. Like, So is that just? Someone was murdered, and their family is sitting out there, and they're creating the image of God also, and this guy's creating the image of God. We're all in the image of God. There's no opportunity or possibility for rehabilitation or redemption if we convict. But if I acquit, there's no justice for family. Well, we're here because of an injustice. The whole court scene is because of an injustice because this guy has committed a murder. And so what we're trying to do is rectify we're that. We're trying to rectify that in some form. Okay. And so given the way that we've set up how the system works itself out, it's unjust. And so for the prospective jury member who is having to make a decision, if he acquits, is that justice? Well, no, it's not justice. But is it justice to find him guilty, sentence him to prison to where it f creates further injustices? So I don't think that is the type of question we should ask. Now, I think what Because there's a dilemma there that is, that is basically unsolvable, I think, especially for, exactly. the, for the jury member. Right? Now, I think, you know, for, for England at least, something radical like that had to happen to rebuild their criminal justice system in England. I don't think nothing as radical needs to happen to have some restructuring done. But I do think that Christians, at the very least, need to hold fast to the Christian narrative in order to mitigate against the current criminal justice narrative. Now, I think that the current criminal justice narrative has some warrant for how it got to where it has gotten. It didn't just arrive to where we're at by accident. Things are not what they should be, obviously. Obviously, if a guy commits a murder and he finds himself in a criminal courtroom, he's there because he shouldn't commit murder. Right. Human beings shouldn't murder one another. I'm in prison for robbery. Human beings shouldn't rob one another. So there is a, a legitimacy to criminal justice, and I think the current narrative of criminal justice is what it is because things are not what they should be, specific relational content of our being created in the image and likeness of God has been knocked off kilter. And I think the ways in which we try to reestablish human dignity and value uh, ends up diminishing that instead of upholding it. You, you basically make the argument that we need to think about the image of God 
with all three of these, substantival, functional, relational. Basically, a combination of those three, not just maybe heavy on the relational, but there is an aspect of the substance and the function of the image of God within us. So you're right that theologically our existence is entirely dependent upon God, and we exist in relation to Him, yet we do not exist in isolation, but there are others who exist in the same way. And, you know, you, you say that theologically, when God created everything, He said it's good. We don't question why the moon is good. We don't question why the sun is good. We actually experience the goodness of the sun and moon, I think. Maybe if we, we don't even realize it or talk about it in those sense. So we don't attempt to quantify the substantive, functional, or relational goodness of all these things in creation. Yet, when we come to human beings, we struggle with that. All creation is good. We accept it because God said it was. When God created man, he said it's very good, especially when you put him together relationally with a woman. But why do we labor, you ask, theologically over why and how human beings are very good? If we're created in the image of likeness of God, then foundationally, because God said you're good, and I, I've put it this way before, God don't make no junk. So God has created everyone and everything good, but we're not necessarily talking about ethical goodness. Because if I violate the humanity of someone else by taking their life or robbing from them or whatever, that's not good. I can be good because God said I'm good, but I can do bad things. That is the essence of our humanity, or that's the reality of our humanity. And I think that's why we struggle with that, right? I mean, yes. so you ask the question, why do we struggle with the basic goodness when God said we're good? And, and I'm thinking because we do bad things, because we sin. Yes, and so I think that we're not talking about, again, an ethical question here. We're talking about an ontological question. There is an ontic ground for our goodness based on the proclamation of God that we are created in His image and His, and his likeness. And because of that, God sees us as very good. Now, again, we don't struggle to see, you know, to qualify other things in creation. The moon is good. If the moon was in any other position, life on earth would be unsustainable. So we see the goodness of the moon because of the position that it's in and how by its position it makes life on earth sustainable. Get the moon out of its position and is it good anymore? But I think the point is, relationally, we, even though we have an ontic ground for our goodness because we're created in the image and likeness of God, our relational position with God is out of place. And I think the current narrative of criminal justice to have gotten where it's gotten is because of things are not what they should be. So there is a, a question now of what, what has gone wrong that causes us to labor the way that we do to quantify or qualify our basic goodness as being created in the image and likeness of God. Okay, so the image of God is marred within me. Not removed, but marred. It's distorted. It's broken, fractured perhaps, based upon sin. Sin. What I do, right? Sin. And that's actually beyond the scope of our discussion at this point, the image of God and how we think in terms of 
this foundational issue of our being or our, our, our creation and how we relate to one another, how we relate to God in the administration of, of justice in this country. But again, this is all part of the narrative or the story, how the story is told and who's telling the story. And part of what we're trying to establish here is that the people of God, the church, or believers, need to, when they approach this issue, they need to think theologically in terms of, of who and what every individual is created in the image of God and what that looks like and what that means just on a basic foundational level. So Jason, thank you for your insight and look forward to our next episode in which we move a little bit further in terms of a reflection on what we're going to call the fall. Figure out what went wrong. We're going to talk about, so something has gone wrong. What exactly has gone wrong? All right. Listeners, thank you for joining us today, and we pray that this discussion helps us think about who and what we are and how we approach these issues. Thank you. Hopefully this has been encouraging, but also challenging you to think through these issues in a new or more concrete way. Listen next time for our conversation on further theological reflections on criminal justice. Thanks for listening to Hurt with Feathers, a podcast that helps us to see ways in which Christian theology ought to shape our understanding of the current narrative of criminal justice. The book Hurt with Fetters, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice is available at Amazon.com.